0: Hi, and welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson.
1: These days, the public engagement side of what museums do really appeals to younger academics who want to communicate their findings and to share the passion that they have in their particular field with a wider public. A friend of mine once said, you know, your average academic paper is read by the audience of a moderately well attended cocktail party.
0: That's Dr. Jillian Siggers, the Williams Director of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology since 2012, and the newly appointed President and CEO of Chicago's Field Museum of Natural History. He holds bachelor's and master's degrees from University College London and a doctorate from the University of Toronto, focusing on human prehistory in the Near East. In his eight years at the Penn Museum, he guided renovation of three-fourths of the University Museum's public spaces, led a $100 million fundraising campaign, and established its Center for the Analysis of Archaeological Materials. The Philadelphia Inquirer called him Penn Museum's biker archaeologist, noting his fondness for vintage British motorbikes and tattoos, including one on his back executed with ancient tools. The Field Museum, where he heads in September, has over 150 scientists working in its labs and around the world, focusing on combating climate change and other threats to our planet, and studying the millions of objects in its collections, which span the full spectrum of the natural sciences. Welcome, Julian. Great to be here, Max. Julian, how did your career start after finishing your doctorate?
1: Well, my career in museums started in a rather unusual way in that I used museums collections as a, you know, an archaeology PhD student. But during my PhD, I started teaching kids at a summer camp at the Royal Ontario Museum. And as you know, Max, kids are one of the more difficult audiences to communicate with. So it was a really firm grounding in how museums can be used to communicate quite complex stories to very challenging audiences. And so my love of science communication really came from that. And that sort of led through television, strangely, to a job at the Royal Ontario Museum where I hosted a weekly science show on new discoveries at the Royal Ontario Museum and new exhibitions that were coming up. And then I sort of stayed, I fell in love with museums and stayed with them from that point on.
0: Tell us more about that television show, would you?
1: It was on the Discovery Channel, on their evening science news show. And so it could have been anything from the discovery of a new dinosaur from one of our paleontologists to a new find from one of our Egyptologists in Egypt to to something that was actually discovered in the collections, one of the most memorable was a discovery of an 80-foot dinosaur, which we didn't know we had, which seemed unlikely at the time, but was true.
0: What was the jump like from Britain and Canada to south of the border, as Canadians call us down here?
1: Um, I, you know, in Canada, we're very, very familiar with the States. But I mean, of course, it is a different environment. I think in museums, the major difference, of course, is fundraising. The sources of museum funding down here government, not really very large. And so really, the progress of a museum comes down to the director's ability to be an effective fundraiser. And so that's a paramount importance to the space. And, and that was a big difference coming from government-funded
0: museums. You spent a considerable amount of time as a field archaeologist. Tell us what some of the misconceptions there are in the public about that discipline.
1: I think the public perception of archaeology is largely derives from Indiana Jones movies, and it's nowhere near, unfortunately, that glamorous. It's rigorous, painstaking, meticulous work. Uh, You often find nothing for days on end, but it's still a very exciting uh, discipline to be involved in, because essentially what you're doing is you're trying to understand an ancient crime scene. You're trying to use all of the data you can find to piece together a picture of what went on on this site in the past.
0: You've dug everywhere from Jordan to your native Britain, and you grew up near Stonehenge, right?
1: I did, about 12 miles from Stonehenge, which is, you know, a very rich prehistoric landscape. There are Neolithic monuments really just behind our house. And so I had a love of archaeology very, very early
0: on. My family lived in England for a year when I was ten and we went to Stonehenge before there were fences and car parks and gift shops. It was quite extraordinary. What else is there neighboring Stonehenge today?
1: I'd also recommend if you anybody who's listening to this does go to Stonehenge that they also go to another really important Neolithic monument site of Avebury, which is maybe fifteen miles to the
0: north of that. And there's been a discovery in that region of late, right?
1: Yes, there was a very important new discovery there. I mean, this was probably one of the most densely occupied landscapes in Neolithic England. So there are many discoveries there remaining to be found.
0: You've been at the helm of one of the largest museum collections in the world. Since its founding in 1887, the Penn Museum has collected nearly a million objects, many obtained directly through its own field excavations or anthropological research. What are you proudest of accomplishing there?
1: Our biggest accomplishment here has been the reimagining of the galleries and public spaces of the museum. So about 75% of the museum will have new galleries and public spaces by the end of this campaign. I'm particularly proud of the new galleries of the ancient Middle East, of Mexico and Central America, and of Africa. One of the most exciting things about working at the Penn Museum is, of course, there is ongoing discovery the collections are never static. They're always being brought to light with new finds. Each year we have between 20 and 28 excavations that we sponsor all around the world. So these new discoveries, which we bring into the galleries, really give the galleries life. So I'm very proud of what we've done here with those. And the next one to open will be the galleries of ancient Egypt and Nubia, which will be absolutely spectacular. They're fully designed. And they contain the only pharaonic palace outside of Egypt, which will be reconstructed to its full height. So it will be an astounding gallery.
0: How do you balance in presentation the pure scientific display of a context and something that gives the visitor more vis-a-vis interpretation?
1: As a research museum, obviously accuracy for us is paramount with the understanding that knowledge changes over time. It evolves. With regards to the sense of awe that one can get in a gallery, luckily, in the case of Egypt, these objects are going to speak for themselves because they stand at 23 feet high. So they're absolutely spectacular pieces in and of themselves and need little to actually enhance them. Although many of the pillars that you'll see in the palace originally had different colors on them. And we will use projection technology to have an option to project the colors on them that they would have had when they were existing, functioning
0: buildings. So in full disclosure, you appointed me a consulting scholar at the Penn Museum a while back. Tell us about the whole network of consulting scholars around the world.
1: It's huge, actually. So we have consulting scholars, I think there are around 200 of them. They are largely attached to the various sections of the museums. And so They really span the globe and they're an enormous asset to us. We have an enormous amount of expertise here at the museum and, of course, in the various departments around Penn itself. But we also have this global network of scholars who come here to look at the collections and also provide us with advice on all of our initiatives going forward as well. So they're a huge asset to us.
0: As you take your leave of the Association of Art Museum Directors, you'll be stepping away from a purely archaeology anthropology museum to a museum that includes archaeology and anthropology, but also a broad array of earth sciences and related specimens and artifacts. How would you summarize the attitudinal differences between directors in AAMD and directors in your new professional body, the Association of Science and Technology Centers?
1: Well that's very much to be discovered actually Max. Um, I would think though that one of the differences is obviously going to be the content that they wrestle with but it may also be one that's perhaps more on the side of interactive family oriented displays. I think that there is a real advocacy for the findings of science in this new group I will be joining. Obviously we stand At an existential moment in the human story, with regards to the crisis in the climate, this is something I know that is central to every one of the science and natural history museums' mandates. Now, is to press the urgency of this crisis that we are now all
0: facing. The Association of Art Museum Directors has an ethical dimension in respect to, for example, collecting antiquities. What are some of the ethical issues, if any, that you're facing in your new professional body?
1: I think it's a question of advocacy. Do you go down the road of activism? And the disadvantage of activism is you can often lose objectivity because you have a stated goal as an activist. And so you perhaps may lose some of the balance that you're meant to have as a dispassionate academic. For me, for natural history museums, I think they should be advocates for the findings of science, of what they have found to be true. And of course, that has particular relevance when we do look at climate change and the environmental crisis that we're facing.
0: We like to imagine that when people leave an art museum after a visit of some length, they're uplifted, they're connected to cultural heritage, they're given greater insight into the world around them. What would you hope a visitor might take away after a visit to the Field Museum?
1: I'd like them to walk away with their worldview changed. I mean, museums are. Places that are full of wonder, and nothing is more wondrous than natural history and the story of our planet. And so I want them leaving just thinking, I really didn't know that, how this planet came into being or how these species interact with each other. So I'm enormously excited about that prospect.
0: As you prepare to take your bow from the Association of Art Museum Directors, how do you think museums are doing in policing their acquisitions to avoid the incentivization of looting.
1: I think that museums are taking this area extremely seriously, and when I joined the AMD, I was, as an archeologist, very heartened to see how much museum directors from art museums want to do everything they can to de-incentivize looting. Obviously, the adherence to the 1970 UNESCO declaration is of paramount importance, and there is a huge amount of scrutiny now that's put on any objects that are potentially donated to a museum. And these can often be very difficult conversations with donors and perhaps even board members, you know, where they have acquired objects in good faith and quite legally, but do not have any provenance information about them or do not have any proof that they were in the country before 1970. And I'm unaware of any museum that doesn't follow these rigorously, at least in the United States.
0: In the United States, we have laws respecting the excavation of materials related to Native American history and culture. But as I understand it, we have next to nothing in place for the natural sciences, no prohibitions. Dig up a dinosaur in your backyard, it's yours. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: As you mentioned, Mac, there's robust legislation around archaeological excavation, but little to none when it comes to The excavation of paleontological objects. So, if you are, say, a rancher in Montana and you come across a Cretaceous dinosaur, that dinosaur is yours to sell on the open market to anybody who wants to buy it. It is an issue that does concern me, particularly as many of these specimens are so important to science and can be bought by the highest bidder, which of course is often not museums.
0: So is this an arena in which you see yourself advocating change, legislative change?
1: I think it is. I think it's something that natural history museums should be getting together to try and lobby for a more robust set of guidelines of of who actually owns the past, not only the human past, but also the past of natural history.
0: Has this topic elicited international interest?
1: There is a very interesting group that the field is part of, which is called the G12. And it's essentially the 12 biggest natural history museums in the world. Six are from North America and six are European. And I'm very interested to see what our European colleagues have done when it comes to
0: legislation
1: on this topic.
0: So it sounds rather like the Bizot Group for art museums, the 50 biggest art museums in the world.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: And the group meets annually? We meet twice a year, once in Europe, once in North America. What else can you tell us about this G12? You
1: know, I think one of the advantages it has is it's very small, and there are basically 12 directors there. So I think they do have a specific items on the agenda, but I think it's a very free-flowing conversation about what's on the front burner in museums of our type.
0: The Field Museum offers you a new and a more visible platform to advocate for the centrality of scientific research and education. A Pew Research survey last year about Americans' general scientific knowledge was surprising, showing that a majority of Americans can correctly answer 10 of 11 specific questions about science. So what does that tell us?
1: I know that that wasn't the case, say, 20 years ago, and I know that many educational initiatives have been put in place to turn that boat around. I do think museums have a very central role in getting K-12 students interested in science, getting them to think of science as a viable career path for
0: them. You have experience in Several nations in respect to educational systems. Can you give us some insight into how you think about the comparative teaching methods, learning methods of them?
1: I've always been quite envious of my colleagues here who've had a liberal arts education, actually, because the UK degree system is very much about getting you into a profession. So when you study to be an archaeologist at university, 90% of your courses are about archaeology or something very closely related to it. I've always found that the American education is more general and more rounded than the educational streams in the UK. The advantage, of course, with the UK one is that you come out of a degree knowing a lot about your chosen field.
0: What's your assumption about the interest of younger people going forward in pursuing a career like yours?
1: I've been really astounded to see how many academics now want to go into museums, which wasn't always the case. They often wanted to get a tenure-track job at a university. But now, particularly at Penn, I mean, the number of people who are doing museum training courses, because this is going to be their chosen career path, is very reassuring. I think these days, the public engagement side of what museums do really appeals to younger academics who want to communicate their findings and to share the passion that they have in their particular field with a wider public. A friend of mine once said, you know, your average academic paper is read by the audience of a moderately well-attended cocktail party, whereas, you know, if you design a gallery or have a temporary exhibit, it could be visited by hundreds of thousands of people.
0: The humanities have taken a beating of late in respect to academic appointments, tenure track. I'm curious how the sciences are faring in your view
1: unlike the humanities there's still a healthy number of people who are going into the sciences whereas as we all know the humanities are facing a very different trend
0: so basically you're getting out just in time julian
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'll always be an archaeologist max
0: okay we've gone this long without talking about the pandemic how is it influencing your thinking about planning at the field museum
1: i think anybody who tells you they know what's going to unfold is for is probably wrong We just don't know where this story is going, really. So what museums are doing is they're planning on being very adaptable to pivot on a dime, because if there is another spike, that's a whole new set of circumstances we're going to have to factor with. I know that we're all very keen to open, but only in safe conditions. I mean, obviously our staff and our visitors are our primary concern, We here at the Penn Museum will be opening to about 25% of our capacity in a couple of weeks' time. We've had a team of 35 people broken out into sub-teams just working on how could you visit this museum in a safe way, but it still also be a a rewarding experience. I think we're just going to have to adapt as the circumstances change over the fall. We know that from some of the museums that have opened, I mean, people do want to go back to museums. They, They are missing them. There are places of great comfort as well as wonder. We're just going to do everything we can to work our way through this and come out the other side.
0: It seems like our digital world left us very unprepared for the assault of nature with the pandemic. What do you foresee the field offering in respect to reconnecting us to nature?
1: One of the things that I've heard again and again is how people are looking at nature differently because of this pandemic. There are people who are working at home who are suddenly noticing birds, which of course are coming back into the cities because there's just less traffic. They're noticing the environment, and I think they're feeling their detachment from it. And that is something the Natural History Museum can facilitate because it can be your access into the wonder of the natural world and how it works. So I think museums like the field can play a really central role in accessing nature. I know that the field does an enormous amount of work in the Amazon, but it also does an enormous amount of work of natural ecosystems within the city of Chicago itself, because cities have their own really interesting ecosystems for wildlife, and they try and fold those to visitors. They have tours of areas around Chicago to see things that you would never have
0: noticed before. Julian, you've been very apposite in harnessing data science and digital technology in your research and the promulgation of knowledge. How do you foresee that continuing at the field?
1: That's been one of the biggest revolutions in academia in all disciplines, actually, is access to big data. I mean, we can now pool data that scientists and researchers can access anywhere on the planet with a laptop. And they can go into it, manipulate it the way they want to, use it in different ways. During this pandemic, when our researchers are working from home, just how much they can do with their laptop at home by accessing various databases. And, of course, so much of libraries now are digitized. Scientific journals have more or less disappeared because they're all digitized as well. So it's had a very profound effect on how scholars research.
0: So digitally-minded kids are now accustomed to seeing the world through a screen. How is that going to affect static displays in museums and, and the demand for interactives? Will that become indispensable?
1: I hope not, and here's why. I mean, there's no doubt that kids today are used to receiving information digitally from a screen, so they are expecting to be communicated with in that manner. However, When you go into a museum like The Field and you see some of their dioramas, I was watching some kids in front of them. They were absolutely awestruck by them. They are so beautiful. I think there will always be a place for that. However, can we use digital tools to drill down into content in galleries? Absolutely we can. And it can provide new levels of understanding, new levels of meaning, new ways of showing objects, showing objects different angles sending information from the gallery to your own email address so you can do more work online when you get home. So there are lots and lots of opportunities, but I think there'll always be a place for what we would call today like traditional displays and exhibitions.
0: Julian, long before the murder of George Floyd, there were calls around the world to decolonize museums, to remove the bias inherent in static displays and interpretation and all manner of ways in which museums operate in portraying the world around us. I'm curious what you foresee happening at the Field Museum in respect to that, and more generally for the discipline of museums.
1: All institutions which are of a certain age have operated in a colonial context. We have to be very transparent about that. It's something we did here with our new African galleries, which contain objects from Benin. And so we were very, very transparent in their display, saying these objects were looted by the British. We are in negotiations with a number of African museums about partnerships with them to redress these issues. And so I don't think there's any running away from our responsibilities of how some of our collections were acquired in the past
0: Broadly speaking, you're going to be responsible for massive collections ranging from animals to fossils and meteorites, plants and fungi, and anthropology. What is the right balance for a contemporary museum of your kind in allocating resources for research versus education?
1: You know, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. Having worked in a number of research-based museums now, research is the sort of Eating heart of the museum that keeps it relevant and always has something new to say. And so what I really believe is, is that the visitor experience can be dramatically enhanced when they are themselves immersed in the research of what's going on behind the scenes in the labs. Moving these two things together, a public engagement and research meshed together, can be very, very powerful. And that's what I hope we can do at the field. And I know they're already doing it.
0: What are you thinking about in respect to both K-12 education and higher education in Chicago?
1: One of the things that I think New have has an enormous responsibility for is for K-12 education. And I know that field has a very active program, so I'm looking forward to finding out more about that. But I could talk a bit about more of what we've done here at the Pan Museum. We worked with the school districts of Philadelphia to enable underserved kids to come here for free. So this program starts with our teachers going into schools in Philadelphia to talk to them about museums. We pay for the bus for them to come to the museum here. They have a day with us where we have curriculum based on ancient civilizations, which is in grade seven. We pay for the lunch and we give them free family membership for a year. And it's been enormously successful. And these are kids who, you know, in some cases, rarely get outside of their neighborhoods, wouldn't necessarily think that museums are actually for them too. And so I think this sort of program can have a really transformative effect. When it comes to the really strong universities in Chicago, like University of Chicago and Northwestern, I know that the field has deep connections with them curatorially, some people even having joint appointments in both universities
0: so as you start thinking about packing up what are you and Marianne most looking forward to about life in Chicago
1: I've been to Chicago many times and I used to live in Toronto I used to go there for a weekend so I love the really vibrant cultural universe that's in Chicago it's a fabulous food city as well but Chicagoans are enormously proud of their city. And you know, when I've been beginning to talk to some of the people I'll be working with and colleagues who are also work in Chicago, they absolutely love their city. And that's a really good sign. So we can't wait to
0: start this next chapter. Julian, thank you for making time for us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Max. We've been speaking today with Dr. Julian Siggers, the Williams director of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology since 2012 and the newly appointed president and CEO of Chicago's Field Museum of Natural History. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of ArtScoping. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of ArtScoping. If you liked what you heard, feel free to follow the show at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts if you care to, which helps other listeners find their way to us.